You're listening to Plenary Session. In today's episode, we have a few things lined up for you. We're going to have a discussion of a seminal trial in medical oncology entitled Keynote 189. Next, we're going to meet with Dr. Talal Hilal. He's an oncology fellow at the Mayo Clinic Scottsdale, Arizona campus. He's going to talk about a paper that he and I recently wrote in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology about the rise of minimal residual disease, or MRD, as a regulatory endpoint for drug approval. It's sure to be a provocative discussion. And last, we have our main guest, Dr. Adam Sifu. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago Medical School. He is a wonderful general internist and incredible thinker, uh, somebody who has dedicated his career to the art of evidence-based medicine and medical education. His interview is sure to delight, so please stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your request. Okay, first, our discussion of a seminal trial called Keynote 189. This is already being called Practice Changing. This is pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Why am I talking about this paper? Well, recently one of the fellows here at OHSU presented this paper to a group of us. And based upon the questions I had at the time, he stated them all. He answered all my questions very well. And he concluded that this paper was pretty strong evidence that immunotherapy should be used in the frontline setting of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, mostly adenocarcinoma subtype. And um, I didn't have too much to say. At the time, I hadn't given the paper a deep dive, so I went ahead and gave it a read. So my fellows recommended I talk about this because they said, you know, you should present a paper that you feel is, you know, not too bad, actually pretty decent. If you feel that way, uh, you should show the audience what does that mean to be a pretty decent paper. And so I gave it a deep dive, and I guess I had a few questions, um, but overall I felt like, you know, this is interesting, and uh, there's a lot I like about it. So let's, let's go through it. I have prepared a few points for discussion, and there are nine of them, okay? And you know what number one is. We thank X and Y for critical review of an earlier version of the manuscript, and Z for medical writing and editorial assistance, and also in the methods of the paper. The first draft of the manuscript was written by the first author, with input from authors employed by the sponsor. Assistance in the preparation of the manuscript was provided by a medical writer employed by the sponsor. The investigators agreed to keep all aspects of the trial confidential. Well, you know, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. I think we have to move to a model where the data analysis and the manuscript preparation are done by investigators at academic medical centers and not done in concert with or partnership with or thanks to the auspices and the funding of the sponsor and the medical writer that the sponsor hired. I think we have to realize that academic medical centers, as they approach the transactional relationship of working with pharmaceutical industry on pivotal clinical trials, should realize that we have a lot of clout. Academic medical centers are the places 
that actually have access to patients. And because they have that access, I think they have tremendous leverage to say, we're only going to participate in studies that we, the academicians, have total control over the analysis, dissemination, and presentation of data. We decide when to publish, what to publish, and how to publish it. And I don't like medical writers, and you know, you've heard me talk about this over and over again, so I'm going to move on. Number two, at a median follow-up of 10 and a half months, the estimated rate of overall survival at 12 months was 69% in the Pembro combination chemotherapy group versus 49% in the placebo combination chemotherapy group. That's a hazard ratio for death for 0.49 and a significant p-value. So overall survival was improved, which is a important patient-centered endpoint. It's an endpoint that we actually know matters for patients. So that's good. And the reason I wanted to highlight this was to point out that this was shown at a median follow-up of 10 months. We did not have to wait for the median to be reached in both arms to know overall survival was improved. See, this is a great fallacy that I hear many experts repeating over and over again, which is it always takes a long time for overall survival to be resulted when the median overall survival is very long. Well. One thing that should be noted is you do not always have to wait for the median to be reached in both arms before you know one arm has an improved survival advantage over another arm. In fact, our friends in cardiology have many trials where both arms have survival rates upwards of 90%, and yet they know there's still a survival benefit from adding X or Y or Z to a treatment regimen. So similarly, one could see the same thing in oncology. Three. Because patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer can undergo rapid clinical deterioration during disease progression, less than one half of patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer receive second-line therapy. This is one of the lines from the paper. And I think it's good to note, and also you should have um, some caveats here. So why is this good to note? So this actually does provide rationale. So before this paper was conducted, before this trial was conducted, before this paper was published, we knew that pembrolizumab or other immunotherapy drugs were superior to chemotherapy in the second-line setting in this disease population. Therefore, for patients who progress on chemotherapy initially, they should all or predominantly or mostly be receiving immunotherapy in accordance with prevailing standard of care in the United States at the time of this study. We knew that because we know IO second-line is better than docetaxel second-line. A number of studies have shown that. So one of the rationales for why moving IO up front would be advantageous is because some patients with non-small cell lung cancer, unfortunately, don't live long enough or they undergo rapid clinical progression um, that they cannot get IO on the second line. At the same time, one must recognize by virtue of being a clinical trial, and I'll give you some data for this in a second, this is a population that probably is less likely to have that happen because all clinical trials generally pick patients who are younger and more fit with fewer comorbidities than the average cancer patient, and thus they may be less likely to undergo rapid disease progression and more likely to be eligible for subsequent lines of therapy. And when I run through the inclusion and exclusion criteria, you may get a sense for why that might be the case. So what's the take-home lesson here is, okay, it is plausible that moving IO up front might be better than giving IO second line, but at the same time, that's the question you have to test. You gotta test whether moving it up front is better than routinely using it second line because routinely using it second line is the current standard of care. So it's plausible. At the same time, given that this is a trial and these patients are likely healthier than the average lung cancer patients we see in our clinic, um, more of them may be eligible for second line therapy than you might see in some population data sets. Okay, 
four. It says this in the methods of the paper. Because of an increased risk of pneumonitis, patients were also excluded if they had received more than 30 grave radiotherapy to the lung in the previous six months. Full eligibility criteria are listed in the trial protocol available with the full text of this article at NEJM.org. I don't like this at all. Um, when you read a clinical trial, you should be able to read the paper and understand what were the inclusion and exclusion criteria. You should not have to go and download the very, very long protocol and print off the protocol pages that actually list the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Because one, it takes a lot of work to do that. And two, the average doctor is not going to do all this work. So I'm going to read to you pages 25 of the protocol all the way through, what is it, 29 that list yeah, 25 to 29 that list inclusion, exclusion criteria. Um, I'm not even sure how much we're going to get through this before we, we fatigue. Um, one, patients have to have histologically confirmed stage four non-small cell lung cancer, non-squamous. Okay, fair enough. They have to have confirmation that EGFR or ALK-directed therapy is not indicated because they don't have EGFR mutations uh, and they don't have ALK gene rearrangements. Uh, okay, fair enough because one, the benefit of IO is... Uh, question mark in patients with driver mutation lung cancer. So fine, it's okay to exclude that as long as we know that and we can use that as we implement this data in clinical practice. Three, they have to have measurable disease based on resist 1.1. If they had regions that were radiated, those had to have then progress before they can be measurable for resist. Okay, fair enough. Um, have not received prior systemic therapy for their advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. If they received adjuvant or neoadjuvant therapy, that should have been completed at least 12 months before. Okay, that's kind of an interesting thing. Maybe maybe make a note of that in the paper. I don't know. Um, they should have provided tumor tissue from locations not radiated prior to biopsy so we can know the pdl one status. Okay, this is interesting. Um, yes, this is good to know. It'll be really good to know for, you know, asking the question whether or not there's a differential treatment effect based on pd well one One might want to see some data on are there any systematic differences between patients for whom biopsy tissue was able to be obtained from those in whom it was not able to be obtained? Are, is there anything about those groups that are different? Um, that would be kind of an interesting thing to kind of use to bolster the claim that, look, this is just for scientific purposes. This is not actually going to affect our clinical trial results. Okay, they have to be over 18. They have to have a life expectancy of at least three months. That's an interesting one. So that means in the eyes of somebody enrolling them on the protocol, they just can't look that sick because if they look very sick, um, somebody might say this person is not eligible for this trial. Um, you know, I'm not sure I like having these kind of inclusion criteria clauses that are really kind of subjective. They have to have a performance status of zero or one on the ECOG performance status scale. That's good to know, but then you know you should really document that this is pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy and metastatic non-small cell lung cancer for patients with good performance status. Maybe you should just say that in the title. They have to have adequate organ function as indicated by the following laboratory values. Okay, an ANC over 1,500, platelets over 100,000, hemoglobin over nine, um, four weeks without transfusion, okay. Uh, that's good to know. Creatinine clearance over 50. A bilirubin less than 1.5 times the upper limit of normal. You know, that's not a very permissive bilirubin threshold. AST and ALT less than 2.5 times the upper limit of normal. Or less than 5 times the upper limit of normal if you have liver metastases. A TSH within normal limits. Um, your INR has to be less than 1.5 times the upper limit of normal. Okay. You have to have, if you're a female of childbearing potential, a negative urine or serum pregnancy test. That's fair enough. You have to be willing to use adequate contraception if you're a female of childbearing potential. If you're a male subject with a female of childbearing potential, you have to use contraception. Okay, exclusion criteria. 
If you're predominantly squamous, you're excluded. If you have mixed tumor histology, you're excluded. If small cell elements are present, you're excluded. That makes sense. If you were in a clinical trial in the last four weeks, you're excluded. If you had prior systemic cytotoxic therapy for metastatic disease, you're excluded. If you've previously received erlotinib or crizotinib or cetuximab, you're excluded. If you had major surgery less than three weeks prior to the first dose, you're excluded. Um, okay, the radiotherapy. If you received a live virus vaccination within 30 days of the treatment start, seasonal flu vaccines are permitted. If you have active diverticulitis or an abscess or obstruction or carcinomatosis of the abdomen, you're excluded. And the list goes on and on and on. But my overall point here is that some summary, some reasonable, impartial synopsis of the inclusion criteria, you know, it, it would be nice if you didn't have to go look through the supplement, the protocol in this case, not even the supplement to find that out. Okay, number five, crossover was permitted. Patients were eligible for crossover is what it says. It doesn't say crossover was mandated or all patients were crossed over if at all possible upon progression, which is really what it what we want it to say because that's really what we want because that's what would really happen um, you know, in the United States at the time of this study. Um, but you know, this is where I say, yeah, this is good. You're crossing them over. In one can imagine a worst case scenario trial where you know crossover wasn't permitted. You didn't have access to these drugs in the second line therapy. Patients didn't get it that much and survival is better. But lo and behold, we haven't answered the question of whether or not the routine upfront use is superior to the second line use, which is really the clinical question that this trial faces. The primary endpoints of this study were co-primary endpoints of OS and PFS. See, I think that's unnecessary. There only needs to be one primary endpoint of this study, OS, period. You don't need PFS at all. We don't need PFS in lung cancer. Lung cancer is a highly lethal condition. You do not need to be utilizing a surrogate when you can utilize the direct measure of what patients actually care about, which can be measured very, very rapidly, as in this case, just 10 months of follow-up. Okay. Here's where it gets interesting, the issue of how many people got pembrolizumab second line. At the time of the data cutoff, 137 out of 405 patients, or 33% in the Pembro chemotherapy arm, were still on the protocol, in the, probably mostly pembrolizumab alone, and 36 out of 202 patients in the placebo arm were still receiving assigned treatment, 17%. So I just went through the supplement, and you had to do math, and you had to kind of find this and pull this out, and I don't like that it's that difficult. I think it should just be given explicitly, perhaps even in a table, but this is what I found of the patients assigned to the control arm. Roughly 17% were still on the protocol. Fair enough. Roughly 40% went on to get immunotherapy, and that's what I like to see. It's not zero, and 40%, you know, that sounds reasonable, uh, but here, contrast that against the 36% that got no subsequent further therapy. Is that too high? Should more people have gotten IO? That's what I don't know for sure. Um, you know, how much did investigators try to get him to the immunotherapy second line? I don't know that for sure. In the Pembro arm of the 400 patients or so on Pembro, about a third remained on therapy, about a third um, had no further therapy, and about 30% got some other therapy. And again, one wants to know whether or not, you know, this is roughly what you would expect to see if investigators were serious about testing the sequence of these drugs, because this is a trial about sequencing drugs that have already proven efficacious and not really about whether or not Pembro works in this tumor type, which we know it does. Okay, eight. Although the outcomes in the placebo combination group appeared to be poorer than those in patients who had received pemetrexid and a platinum drug in some historical studies, the rate of disease control and progression-free survival were consistent with those in many landmark studies. 
So this is interesting. So the authors are conceding that perhaps the median survival in the control arm was a little bit lower than what you might expect in historical studies. And that would be a bit problematic. It would run up against the generalizability of this trial and make people wonder, you know, what's going on in the control arm? And there's a nice letter that kind of drives this point a little bit more. The authors also report that outcomes in the chemotherapy alone arm were poorer than those in maintenance trials of pemetrexid. However, such trials are not ideal comparisons for chemotherapy alone group because the median overall survival was nearly 17 months in those maintenance trials. In addition, patients who did not have progressive disease were included in this study, but not in the maintenance trials, and the results reflect the outcomes of the group. So it would be misleading to compare Keynote 189 with those patients in the maintenance trials. Nevertheless, the results reported by Gandhi for the chemotherapy group appear poorer than expected. The 12-month survival rate in patients with PDL1 over 50% was 48%. The corresponding data was 54% in, in the other landmark pembrolizumab trial, which included patients with squamous carcinoma, which is a histology with worse outcomes. Another remarkable result was the response rate of 18.9% of the chemotherapy-only group, which is much lower than response rate of more than 30% with pemetrexid platinum combinations in prior trials. So what this person is saying is, you know, your control arm is not having the response rate that we typically see with those drugs in this setting, and your pdl one over 50% survival group is not as good as what we might see in other trials. These poor results need to be explained before the addition of pembrolic chemotherapy. Okay, so that's a good question. So my overall picture, what do I like about this trial? I like that this trial actually does to some degree concede that the question here is a question of whether or not the routine upfront use is preferential to the current sequential use. They do that because they permit crossover so they don't ban it. Permitting is better than banning. The open question I have in my mind is whether or not they really were trying to get as many patients in the control arm to IO as much as possible as you would have in your own clinical practice at the time of this study. And that's a question that I just don't know for sure. Um, the other question I have is, you know, this is a randomized trial, so one can always do these cross-trial comparisons, um, and I don't put too much stock in that, but, you know, the gentleman's point in the letter writer's point is interesting. Why is the response rate, you know, lower than, and perhaps substantively lower than, you know, what we've seen in other trials? So when the fellows presented this, I liked it a lot. Now that I've read it, I like it okay. I think, you know... This is the difficult task of medicine. This is um, compelling data. They've measured the right endpoint. They did not ban crossover. Rates of crossover were not ridiculously low, although one wondered if they were as high as they should be. The survival benefit was clear, um, was big, was meaningful, um, and it showed very, very quickly. So I would say overall, I think not knowing anything other than you know my deep reading of this, I would say I think this does likely change the standard of care in this setting for patients with certainly with PDL one expression between one and forty nine percent over fifty percent. I think there will still be open the question whether or not you need the chemo and if you could just give pembrolizumab single agent. Um, and this actually did show the benefit of pembrolizumab extended into the group with less than one percent PDL one expression. So I think you know it is reasonable to use pembrolizumab in combination with chemotherapy based on this trial. And I think that the areas that still give me a bit of pause are really part of the reason why, at some point, we just need trials to be conducted by non-conflicted impartial groups so that people can know that the investigators 
were not influenced by the company and that they really did try to use IO as optimally in the second line as they otherwise would have if not on the trial. Um, so we need a non-conflicted group to kind of do these trials and run them in the future. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Talal Hilal. He's a fellow at the Mayo Clinic Scottsdale, Arizona campus. Is that right, Talal? Yes, yeah. Actually, now we're in Phoenix. Oh, you're in Phoenix. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here on the Plenary Session stage. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's not often a fellow gets to give the Plenary Session. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Is this going to be the highlight of your episode? Well, it will be it will be a highlight, um, but I think we'll have uh, we'll have an, an, a guest come talk after you for for a long period of time. But we'll have you back sometime, and we'll really probe maybe a bunch of different topics. Sounds great. Sounds good. But I'm having you on today to talk about a very interesting article that you and I wrote for Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, um, a preeminent journal. This is entitled "Eliminating MRD." the FDA approval of blinitumumab for B-cell ALL in complete remission. And I just want to say one thing before I ask you a bunch of questions about this, which was just Tuesday of this week, October 2nd, an NGS assay for MRD detection gains FDA approval for two blood cancers. This was an article that came out that the FDA has approved a new assay to look for MRD in multiple myeloma and ALL. And... MRD is gaining a lot of popularity. Uh, People are talking about it more and more. Can you tell listeners, what the heck is MRD? Yeah, sure. So so MRD is is, is basically, I mean, it stands for minimal residual disease. And Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a term we use now to detect very low level of disease using... um, methods such as flow or cytometry or PCR that, you know, um, a decade or two ago, we couldn't really detect. And, you know, patients who were um, set to be in complete response or in remission may have had MRD, may have had minimal residual residual disease that we couldn't detect by, you know, traditional methods. Um, And so the, I think the interest lies in the fact that, you know, if we don't detect disease by traditional methods, but we know it's there if we do highly sensitive techniques uh, to, to look for it, what does that mean to the patient? Does that mean they still have the disease? Does that mean we're, we're curing those that we thought we, you know, were, or are they really going to relapse? Mm-hmm. And um, so that's, I think, where, you know, a lot of the research is in terms of, you know, hematologic malignancy and maybe even perhaps solid tumors in, in some way when we look for, um, you know, circulating tumor cells or DNA. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that MRD is a novel method to detect circulating cancer cells or low levels of cancer cells that we historically could not detect. One thing I want to clarify is that simply because someone is MRD negative, does that mean there's absolutely no cancer cells in their entire body? No, so it, it just means that we still can't probably detect those mm-hmm. cancer cells and we don't have 
uh, an even more highly sensitive mechanism yet. Good answer. Uh, so what you're saying is that this is a, we're pushing sensitivity more sensitive than before, but we're not all the way sensitive. We're not down to the one cell in the whole body kind of sensitivity. Right, right, exactly. Okay. Now, one of the things that drew our attention to MRD is that we're seeing it more and more. We're seeing people looking at it more and more, and we're seeing the commissioner of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, describing it as fit for purpose. In mm -hmm. other words, you and I believe, and we believe there's evidence to suggest, that the FDA will be using MRD more and more as the basis of regulatory approval. Right. Right, and that's that's sort of, uh, I think, where the idea for this paper came from, is, you know, what is the data really behind using MRD as a as a surrogate marker for, you know, regulatory drug approval. And, um, you know, it seems like it's moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. Whether we have the, the, you know, the strong data to back it, that's the main question. Mm -hmm. So I think you're hitting a number of good points. This is a surrogate endpoint. It's a novel surrogate endpoint. And it's a surrogate endpoint because patients don't feel MRD necessarily. Mm-hmm. And and when you're say and you're saying, what is the data we have that supports the use of this as a surrogate endpoint? Correct. So let let's first talk about the the data that supports this as a prognostic marker, i.e., mm -hmm. if you have MRD negativity, do you do better than if you have MRD positivity? Is that true? At least in B cell ALL, we can talk about. Correct. Yeah, prognostically, it's it's clear that you know MRD negative or lack of MRD, so to speak, is uh, is good. I mean, if you can achieve that with induction chemo, traditional chemo, or whatever you know treatment you're you're offering the patient, then they're probably going to do they're going to do a lot better. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we have um, meta analyses now uh, of several trials that sort of validate that as a prognostic marker. Mm -hmm. But it's a different thing. To, say, to take that next leap and say, okay, now that I know MRD is prognostic, better not to have MRD, the next leap would be drugs that convert people from MRD positive to negative, those drugs will improve survival. Can you explain, and I know this is tricky and maybe I can't even do it myself, so that's why I'm gonna toss it to you. Can you explain <sighs> why is that a cognitive leap? MRD positive, bad, MRD negative, better, um, but a drug that converts from positive to negative may or may not improve overall survival. Why is that a separate kind of question? Um, well, I think, I think the, the question lies in um, the ability to say, you know, just because I gave a patient a drug and I converted them from MRD negative, from positive to negative, mm -hmm. and, you know, Therefore, we know that negative is good overall, so they're going to be doing well. You know, the only way to really say that definitively is is by actually comparing that strategy with a strategy where you don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, you you really want to detect, you want to be able to look at patients from a you know, survival standpoint, long term, because you're just measuring MRD 
at, at one point in time, and and that can change. You know, just because you convert somebody to MRD negative doesn't mean they're going to stay negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, I think I think it speaks a lot about the disease biology, mm-hmm. and you know, pa- patients who respond to therapy initially and do become MRD negative and stay MRD negative and do well and sur- and survive longer, responded to, you know. Other therapies. I mean, they respond to therapies that are not—they're not being approved right now based on MRD. And so, um, it tells you something about their disease. And yes, this disease that doesn't turn MRD negative may need different drugs. It may need a d- different combination. It may need a monoclonal antibody type uh, therapy. But but then you really cannot say just because I converted someone to MRD negative with this drug. Um, then, you know, I'm, I'm by default making them live longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's how you I, write it in the paper. Let me give lis- listeners yeah. a chance to hear it. Um, the prognostic implications of MRD for survival have been demonstrated in a meta-analysis. Uh, however, validation of a surrogate endpoint requires both individual-level surrogacy, in which the surrogate outcome is prognostic for the endpoint independent of treatment, and trial-level surrogacy, in which the effect of treatment on the surrogate measure reliably predicts effects on the true endpoint. These aspects need to be validated independently. Establishing the utility of MRD as a trial-level surrogate will require a meta-analysis demonstrating that between-arm differences in MRD status accurately predict between-arm differences in survival in randomized control trials. Therefore, the extent to which blinitumumab improves MRD has to sufficiently correlate with the extent to which it will or hopes to improve survival. To date, this has not been demonstrated. This is a tricky concept. I mean, this what you're talking yeah. about is trial-level validity, and it's really saying, if you look at many, many studies, do drugs that improve the rate of MRD clearance that drive you to MRD negativity, do they later improve survival? And that's a very different kind of question than does simply having it or not having it have a prognostic effect. And I guess the other classic place we see this is with PATH-CR, which is, of course, it's better to have a pathologic complete response than to not. But yet drugs mm-hmm. that increase PATH-CR fraction appear to have very little correlation with subsequent DFS and almost no correlation with subsequent OS, which was kind of the paradox of the pertuzumab, lapatinib kind of studies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Now the question becomes how do you how do you actually do it? And is it, is it going to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, can we really, uh, have trial level surrogacy validation for MRD? Um, you know, I think some might argue, you know, it ends up being a question of trial design and, you know, are you, how would you design those trials? Are you really going to not give patients a drug if they're MRD positive? If you know the drug may, you know, are, is more likely to make them MRD negative. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's going to be tricky. And I think uh, just just looking at at Twitter and transplanters and what they uh, feel, you know, I, I've seen right. that many will use blenitumumab. I mean, that's you have a patient, a young patient, they, they're done with their induction maintenance therapy. They're still MRD positive. Are you going to give them blenitumumab? You know, you know, it's going to become negative probably. There's what a high percentage mean? of people, right, but what does it mean? I guess the good news is we have the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group study, which will adjudicate this question. And you kind of right. articulated it in what you said initially, which was that 
you know, it's a testable hypothesis, just like any other active cancer drug. Does it improve survival? It's a plausible, bioplausible, testable hypothesis. And the right way to test it is to say you randomize people to driving it down versus not driving it down and see do they do better. And thankfully, we have the ECOG study um, that we talk about in the paper that should adjudicate that hopefully in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. 2023. 2023. I'm going to mark it down on my calendar, <laughs> right next to yeah. the next eclipse. Hopefully, I'm going to hit the, I'm going to hit the two of them. Let me ask you something. In you know, reading about MRD, um, you feel like um, it, it's coming that we're going to see more and more MRD approvals. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. And you also want to say something like. Well, the jury is still out, and and although we should be excited, uh, we shouldn't be overexcited, and we shouldn't forget that there are things we haven't shown, like we haven't shown people live longer, live better just yet. Right, correct. And I think it's important to to keep that in mind, even if you are using these therapies for these patients. I see, right. Even if you do embrace it, you should at least have the humility to know, look, there's stuff we don't know, and you should counsel patients appropriately. Right, exactly. I think... You know, the problem comes in where we start, you know, believing so much in what sounds reasonable um, and we just abandon any further uh, search, you know, for, for, for the evidence or for more data to back that up. And, and then you're very confident with patients, but you really shouldn't be all the time, I think. And, um, and you know, I think that's where that's, that's where it gets tricky. Um, because you are giving toxic therapy, you know, and, and you also don't want to sound like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so, you know, there is hope, I think, that this may be something that patients will end up receiving, maybe even in the frontline setting, um, if, if it's truly going to be the kind of therapy that will lead to higher MRD negative rates and, and higher survival. But, um, but I think until then, it's, it's a little hard to, to be very certain about it. I think you put that very nicely. Um, we should not forget that blinitumumab is um, uh, a toxic therapy. It has real toxicities and real risks and often requires hospitalization, uh, at least right. in the initial treatment for a period of time. Although many people believe that when you're using it for this MRD purpose, that hospitalization can be abbreviated. But nevertheless, uh, you wouldn't be in the hospital if this was a therapy with zero risk. Uh, so it's a therapy with real risk. Right, right. Well, what? Uh, any final thoughts on MRD and blinitumumab and, and the coming MRD revolution? I think, uh, yeah, the revolution is here. You know, I think now we just really have to make sure that we um, we have the data to back it up. And, and, you know, and even if we get approvals like this and accelerated approval and, you know, like you say, there, there should be randomized trials underway to validate it. And, you know, I think hopefully with time we will be able to reach a tri-level um, surrogacy validation for MRD and, and feel better about ourselves. But, but I think until then it's going to be, uh, I'm still going to be thinking when I'm seeing a patient in the hospital who's getting blinitumumab and is in complete remission, you know, are, are they, are they really, going to benefit, especially if they're going to transplant or, you know, or am I just giving them this other toxic therapy? I think this is still going to be um, hard for me to get on board with just yet. I think um, what I'm hearing from you is 
both excitement, optimism, but also caution and prudence and um, and and to me, you know, the note you're striking is just so perfect. And I just um, I just wish everyone were just like you because that's just really I think the right balance you've just hit so so perfectly. So. Uh, Talal, thank you so much. Um, this paper is is out in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. It's called Eliminating MRD, the FDA Approval of Blinitumumab for B-cell ALL in Complete Remission. I'm a big fan of your papers. Uh, I, I think you did a, a, an amazing job here bringing this, uh, bringing this paper to light. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the plenary session and, and giving us your thoughts about this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to coming again. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Adam Sifu. Dr. Sifu is a professor of medicine at the University of Chicago, and we wrote a book called Ending Medical Reversal. Uh, Adam, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Vinay, thank you. It's terrific to be here. When I told you you're going to give the plenary session, is, is this what you had in mind? This is exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> this is about the only plenary session I'd be invited to give, I think. <laughs> I think that, that the general medicine crowd should have a plenary session on medical reversal. It's a much-needed topic for them to hear about. They're the only ones who care about it, really. <laughs> it's probably true. We're mostly listening to people who are trying to pitch us on other therapies, and we have to argue back, so um, <laughs> it would be a pleasure. I noticed something about you, general internist. Even though many of your interventions are relatively low cost, you still try to uh, cut back wherever you can, even on things like the daily chemistry panel and things of that nature, while we in oncology are running up the tab. It is true. Though we are responsible for a lot of referrals to people who spend a lot of money. Um, so that's probably where we can cut back the most. Oh, that's true. Once you, once you let them out of your office, who knows what will happen. Adam, I wanted to talk to you about a few things. But first, allow me to tell listeners a little bit more about you. Um, you're a professor of medicine. You've been working at the University of Chicago since the 1990s. And I guess we don't have to specify which year in the 1990s, do we? <laughs> okay, 1997, 21 years. 21 Scary. years. I, mm-hmm. I came here for three years, and now I feel like I'm going to die here. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got you trapped in. They have a. Uh, they got you. They got you. They got you locked in right where they want you. And um, over the years, you've continued to have a, a general medicine panel all these years. Uh, your own clinic, um, although it's grown and shrunk uh, over the years, has it not? Yeah, I think anybody who's in academic medicine certainly knows that depending on what else you're doing in your career, mm-hmm. you have more or less clinical time. Um, and so that's been the story of my practice, starting as really uh, really a primary care doctor doing little else besides being, seeing patients. And as the years go on, um, my practice has sort of shrunk. Um, now I see people three half days by myself, one half day with the residents, which seems, for what I do, sort of perfect. Um, mm. So I, I kind of defend that level of patient care. Mm. But isn't it the doctor who sees no patients who's best equipped to talk about the healthcare policy of the physician's office? Oh, absolutely. Healthcare policy, clinical guidelines, and especially reflection on practice experience <laughs> over the years. Right. You want the doctor who just doesn't see patients anymore. I seek those out to read. Let me ask you something. You've seen uh, some of the patients in your practice. Are they the same patients you've had for 21 years? 
I, they are. They are. Um, it's really, it's really wonderful because to be in an academic institution um, and you know spending a lot of time doing other things, to be able to go to my clinic and really see people when I look back, you know, in the medical record and see their first visit from whatever July fifteenth, nineteen ninety-seven. It's terrific, and it's this interesting bond, you know, yeah. that the patients and the doctors can share having been with each other that long, having experienced lots of things, having sort of seen each other age. I I love it. Um, I actually have a piece coming out in the coming months, um, which is which is an argument to sort of persevere and practice because of all the benefits it brings both to patient and doctor over time. Oh, that's interesting because these days so often many people talk about the burnout of a general internal medicine practice, and you're saying that in the long run you will be grateful that you stuck with it. I really think it's true. I mean, the, you know, to to a great extent. I mean, I'm sure it brings benefits to patient care, but but you can't prove just, it. I can't prove it. I can't prove it. <laughs> okay. But in self-interest, it honestly makes things easier. You get to know these people well. Um, you know when you need to worry. You know when you don't need to worry. Um, it's it's terrific. Hmm. That sounds that that sounds like a really wonderful experience to have the same you know people you talk to for that length of time. Um, in my world, uh, the times are shorter, and even the patients who are cured, uh, you know, they graduate out of the clinic and we stop seeing them after a few years. But I'm just surprised at how quickly um, we get to know each other very well and we start talking much more about each other's lives um, than we do always about the medicine. We eventually get to the medicine, but that's, you know, that's the second part of the conversation. Sure. I have this I have this line that I that I frequently quote and have included in at least two articles mm-hmm. um, that the longer we see patients, you know, the more of our the more of our friends who become our patients and the more of our patients who become our friends. Mm. I have no idea who said that first um, and I'm dying to find out so I can appropriately quote them. But it's so true. Um and a difficulty and a real change in the practices is that once you've been somewhere for a long time, you really end up seeing a ton of colleagues, ton of people from around the neighborhood, um, which to some extent is great. Mm-hmm. And another extent, those relationships can be pretty fraught when um, those people get sick um, or when they bring in issues that might be uncomfortable for them to talk about with mm-hmm. someone who they share patients or, you know, share a homeroom teacher with their children. I see. Right. When you know each other from outside of work as well. Sure. Sure. Now let's talk a little bit, just to give, just to give listeners a little bit more background about the many hats you wear. Um, you also teach uh, a couple of formal classes at the medical school and the clerkship director. You're the clerkship director of the internal medicine, res- uh, internal medicine uh, clerkship uh, for third-year medical students. That's right. I've been the clerkship director since I think 2000, so a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach a, a fourth-year course mm-hmm. called Critical Appraisal of the Landmark Medical Literature, um, where we read a lot of classic studies, and also I hope to bring students' critical appraisal skills up to a higher level before they head out. Um, and then just for the last five years, I've been teaching a first-year class called uh, Medical Evidence, um, which is looking at you know, what we use as evidence in medicine, how we how we decide to practice, where we do that well, how we make mistakes. And it took the place of the classic, you know, biostatistics and epidemiology course, which was roundly despised by the students. Um, <laughs> and the medical evidence course 
mm-hmm. concentrates on, mm-hmm. on the evidence we use to make clinical decisions, when we do that well, when we do that poorly, with a good, good deal of biostatistics sprinkled in there. So the students have a good sense of how to read the literature and kind of the basics of also how to do mostly clinical research. Now, I think um, I want to first dive in on your on, on the clerkship, which I um, have such fond memories of. Uh, I took this in the summer of, I believe, uh, 2007, so just over a decade ago. Uh, and it was my first clerkship rotation. And it was a wonderful clerkship rotation. And it actually kind of changed the way I had thought about medical school up until that moment. And I'll tell you why. Um, as you know, uh, back then, at least, and you can tell me if things have changed or how substantively things have changed, uh, but back then, at least, uh, we spent two years in the classroom memorizing a wealth of biomedical, mostly trivia, but some useful facts, uh, but mostly trivia. And we really were very disconnected from the clinical side of medicine and very disconnected, I think, from clinical reasoning, with some minor exceptions from the CPP and T course, um, but mostly disconnected from how doctors think. And then suddenly, one morning, you're asked to report at you know 6.30 a.m. to the general medicine floor, meet your team, meet uh, usually a terrific resident, because let's be honest, as University of Chicago, the internal medicine residency was terrific and the residents were terrific. You meet a terrific resident, terrific intern, usually two students, and you'd be assigned patients, and you were asked to learn everything you can about the patients, present them on rounds, try to guide decision-making, knowing that you know, you're not gonna be able to do it right off the bat. Um, and we'd have weekly, maybe twice-weekly seminars from you, from Dr. Stern, uh, from other expert physicians who explain how they think about medicine. And to me, that was kind of eye-opening, and that was what I had always hoped medical school would be like, and I was glad I got to experience after two years of kind of being in the trenches, memorizing things in a library. Um, is that how you see that clerkship? It's it's kind of a wake-up call? It's, I don't know. It's kind of a, um, a cathartic moment for students? <laughs> oh, that is... That is the most optimistic and best description of the clerkship um, (laughs) that I could ask for. Um, I think it is. And what's sad when I listen to you talk about it is that clearly that's what all of medical school should be. That's what I want it to be, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I I mean, what you mentioned, which is, I think, so important, is uh, the mentoring that takes place. Uh, So sitting down with a physician, seeing how a more senior physician thinks through cases, Um, Ideally, in that, learning both how they use evidence, so where are those decisions coming from, how do they figure out how to diagnose disease in the person, what the appropriate treatment should be, and then learning the medicine tied to patients. Um, I always tell the students, you know, I took care of a guy when I was a third year, and to really date me, he had non-A, non-B hepatitis, oh boy. decompensated <laughs> for disease, uh-huh. uh, right? Non-A, non-B, I, right, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I think we now know what it would have been. <laughs> right. Um, and I spent every day for three months, not for three months, probably for three weeks, you know, doing a paracentesis on this guy, talking to him, and I learned everything imaginable about hepatitis and decompensated liver disease from this guy. Mm-hmm. And I still remember a lot of that. And you know, some of it is still true. 
On the other hand, I think before we went on air, you know, we were talking about some articles from the New England Journal last week. Mm-hmm. I have trouble remembering those mm. because they're not linked to a patient. Right. And so if we can do more of this education linked to actual patients and not kind of made up cases, I just think that'll help so much with how students both learn and then remember that information. I would say that I agree with you wholeheartedly. The, the, the things I remember the best were a person forced me to, I mean, part of it was you saw the patient, the residents would teach you a little bit about it. You'd go look it up on up to date. You'd look it up in a journal. You'd read an article linked to that patient. And then forever, that article, that fact is tied to that person in your mind. And, and I sometimes still remember, um, you know, some of these people I interacted with who left such an indelible mark on, right. on my medical memory. I think the great point about that is also, you know, we talk so much about lifelong learning, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, most of what we teach students is going to be out of date by the time they finish their training. And how do we teach them to learn over a lifetime? Um, and I really do think of things that have become important since I finished training. One that comes to mind is, and I hate to talk to you about this, but is, you know, is cancer genetics. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and yeah. the time that I finally sort of figured out... Um, all the BRCA mutations and what needs to be done about them is when I finally had a patient who I screened who tested positive and I had to manage you know, her risk-reducing oophorectomy and the decision mm-hmm. around mastectomy. And boy, you know, reading about it, looking that woman through those decisions is something which has made me understand. And then when I read articles now, I can really build on that foundation. Now, that's so well put because... And then the other thing I'd say is that... Um, even though that might be the first person you've walked through that particular genetic risk kind of calculus and thought process, you, by being a student of and teacher of evidence-based medicine, you have all the tools to export that kind of risk calculus that you've probably used thousands of times for cardiovascular conditions or for other conditions where you're thinking about risk over time and how do you manage that. Um, so you have kind of this Swiss Army knife skill set that you're applying for a different purpose, and that's forcing you to learn the content of that different purpose. Would you say that sure. that feels right? Sure, absolutely. And and you're getting to the difficulty of you know what what we should ideally in medical education be doing is teaching people that skill set is is you know buying them that Swiss Army knife. Though I guess they actually buy their own Swiss Army. And it's a pricey and it's a pricey knife. <laughs> It's it a, is. it's like it might as well be a cancer immunotherapy drug. You call it pembrolizumab. It's a hundred thousand dollar a year uh, a knife they're buying. You you got it. But let me so, ask you this, um, and this is what I want to push on. The first two years of medical school. This is what you know. We keep discussing online, alluding to. Let's have it out. Why are we making students memorize so many facts that have nothing to do with the practice of medicine? I'll just give you one example. I remember memorizing the different isoforms of RNA polymerase for step one. (laughs) I couldn't tell you what they are right now. Uh, I remember I was just teaching a class. We walked into the room and somebody had Ashoff body written on the board and I couldn't quite place it. And I asked the students, what is this Ashoff body? They say it's a histopathologic hallmark of rheumatic heart disease. Then I asked them, what's a p-value? None of them could answer that. And I had to tell them that, you know, based on national statistics on the incidence of rheumatic heart disease and how often we're confronted with p-values, if I had to pick between Ashoff body and p-value, I would have you memorize the p-value. But that's not what you're being taught. You're being taught the opposite. So why is so much of the curriculum tangential to the central task of being a doctor? 
That's a huge question. Um, <laughs> I guess we could start with because Osler told it told us it should be right, <laughs> um, or maybe Flexner. Um, I think it goes back for a couple of reasons. One, it is history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a time that there wasn't that much to learn, and so we had tons of time to teach basic sciences. It was a time before evidence-based medicine, and so most of our decision-making in medicine mm-hmm. was based on sort of physiologic reasoning, so it made a mm-hmm. whole lot of sense back then. Um, there's this tendency now, I mean, whenever I get into arguments with people about this, it's that, well, doctors need to know that because this is what separates doctors from, I don't know, nurse practitioners. right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people feel very threatened by that. And, and we need this, this knowledge, even if it's not terribly useful to differentiate ourselves. Um, the technician argument, I, I mean, this is what the way I think about that is that when somebody says, oh, you know, if we didn't learn this, we would be, uh, you know, nothing more than a technician. What are they really getting at? I think they're getting at that a technician is quite competent and able to do something if it's sort of pattern recognition, the same thing they see all the time. But when a technician is confronted with something that's outside of what they usually see or what they usually do, they often have difficulty thinking through that. And I think that's the criticism they're saying about medis- about doctors. If you taught sort of empirical medicine, um, you'd have difficulty thinking through these difficult cases. But what I want to say in response to that is that pathophysiologic models is just one way to handle the uncertainty, the cases that don't quite fit the mold. There are lots of other tools one can use. One can use psychological tools, tools of risk assessment, principles of medicine, um, how one extrapolates empirically from prior studies. What are some of the lessons of extrapolation? Um, One can start to ask more testable questions. And so it's not immediately obvious to me that simply knowing models of biological signaling pathways at greater and greater depth necessarily means one is, one, more equipped to make those decisions, and two, that one is more correct in the decisions that one makes. I think there are different tools you could use to make those decisions, and you should have some humility to know you may or may not be correct in those decisions. So I don't like that technician argument. I completely agree. And, and, you know, to a great extent, you know, algorithmic healthcare for many things works fine. And maybe um, superior to letting people, right. Uh, absolutely. Unfortunately, many problems that we deal with uh, don't have algorithms. People are incredibly complicated, and so um, most people don't fit nicely into an algorithm diagnose, diagnostically or therapeutically. And so where we need to train the students is to figure out, boy, you know, here's the algorithm, here's where you start, Here's where you have to be alert to go in your own direction there, ideally based on evidence at hand. And where we learn that is from clinical experience, from mentored clinical experience, right? Seeing a host of patients who are presenting maybe with the same disease, maybe with different disease, but always in different ways because they're human. And having someone who's had that sort of clinical experience work you through the case and say, okay, this is where it gets complicated. This is where we need to pull in new information. It's it's seldom that you're going to figure that out by saying, you know, let me think back to the Krebs cycle and let me <laughs> right. think where that, you know, ATP comes from. Right. Um, so most of that is, is unnecessary. Of course, you know, th- there is some threshold of knowledge that you have to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things like the Starling curve that, you know, you do think about and right. you, that makes you understand why, why diuresis works in heart failure. Right. And why it may even improve cardiac output. Um, 
in certain situations. What I want to ask you is, one of the things you know you're talking about uh, seems sort of the backdrop that you've sort of assumed is that you've assumed the goal of medical school is to train doctors uh, who see patients who practice medicine. Uh, but I'm increasingly confronted with people who hold the view that medical school has to train you to do all sorts of things from be a doctorpreneur and create an app to uh, be a doctor lawyer and uh, and settle malpractice cases to be a, 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 a doctor um, a pharmaceutical executive and have a background in MBA or something like that. Sure, sure. Do you, is medical school about making doctors? Is, is that still one of the goals of medical school or is that, is that no longer a goal? Well, <laughs> there's a setup, right? Um, so, so I certainly think that the primary goal of medical school is to turn out doctors. And I think we need to turn out doctors who are, you know, excellent clinicians, who have the skills and the tools to work with patients. Um, they need the skills and the tools to continue to grow, to do sort of, as we say, you know, problem-based learning. Mm -hmm. um, and they need the tools to sort of fit into today's very complicated healthcare environment. Um, but I also think, I mean, one of the great things about medical school and why I still, you know, very frequently encourage people to, to go this route is that it is a degree that you can use for a lot of things. And there's nothing wrong with getting through, you know, into your last year of medical school and saying, wow, you know, patient care really isn't for me um, because there's so much you can apply that MD degree to. If you were given total control over medical education, what would you want medical education to look like? How would it look? First, I would warn you about giving me total control of anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's no safety switch. We can't turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what I would do with medical school, if you were if you were crazy enough to give me total control, um, is I would <laughs> I, I would prepare the students with some basic knowledge. Um, clearly, students, before they can see patients, need to learn interviewing schools. They need to learn some basic medicine. Uh, it is the difficulty with teaching medicine you know, now is that students need to know things to learn things. Um, and there's always a bit of a tension early on. But then I would very quickly get them seeing patients. I would get them seeing patients with dedicated um, clinicians. Uh, so people who are taking a day out of the week to spend time seeing patients and managing patients with students. Um, I would love for them to have time the same day to talk in depth about why they made the decisions they made, very likely going to the evidence to look at, so, you know, how do we diagnose a pulmonary embolism these days? And what's the appropriate treatment mm -hmm. for that pulmonary embolism? Um, this would very quickly get students learning medicine and really getting good at seeing patients. Um, I think then after learning mm -hmm. medicine in the first year, and I have lots I could add to that, we would do the same sort of clinical mm -hmm. um, clerkships that we do now, really intensive dives into each field so students could understand, you know, what does an OBGYN do? What does a family practitioner do? Both so they can make career decisions, but mm -hmm. also learn important things about medicine. And then I think the fourth year gets to your question about medical school is not just to train doctors. We turn out a lot of MDs who do other things. And in that, in that sort of final, I don't know, 18 months of medical school, our 
doctors or doctors-to-be should be able to craft the remainder of my education around that. Um, so, uh, you know, a budding surgeon should be able to do really high-level cadaver-based anatomy. An internist or a pediatrician might do, you know, high-level critical appraisal courses, um, interviewing skills, clinical reasoning. And your person who's going to be a, you know, immunologist can then take the really deep dive into the basic sciences, which I've sort of thrown out the window because for me as a primary care doctor, I don't need to know that. Um, but if you're going to be someone who's going to be doing research mm -hmm. or working for a pharmaceutical company, boy, you need to do that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the people who really are serious about doing laboratory work, it's not going to just be one year. They're going to have to spend years and years maybe postdocing all those kinds of things. Oh, absolutely. And that's okay too. Um, but I really like your model, and I think what I like the most about it is this recognition that at the end of the day, medicine begins and ends at the doctor-patient encounter. That's where it starts, and that's where you ultimately go back to. And one of the things I really like about your model is that probably the best way we do learn how to practice medicine is that sort of iterative approach. You see someone, you make some decisions, you have some autonomy, but then in the afternoon you have some supervision. You have someone bringing you to task for what you did, asking you why you did that. And, you know, we talk about evidence-based medicine, but I think there are several levels of justification. The first level of justification is, well, does this make sense? Does this pass a common sense test? Um, does it even have a logic to it? Then the next level is, okay, it has a logic. What's the available data? What kind of studies have been done on this topic? Is there circumstantial evidence that would suggest this makes sense? And then the final thing would be like, and what you really hope you have is like, is there a really gold standard, well done, randomized trials um, that this treatment approach would fit or follow or at least be a reasonable extrapolation from? And there's no substitute, I think, for having somebody who's good at that who's also a very good communicator, walk you through how they think about it. And you do that over and over again, and that's how you learn how to practice medicine. And people who doubt that um, should remind themselves that that's really what residency is. Um, residency is that process, although you're not always so lucky. You're not always paired with someone who's exceptionally good at it, um, but hopefully you're paired with people who are good at it or good enough at it enough of the time that you get good at it. Right. And the two important points that you made that I think are worth highlighting is first the, um, the progressive responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when, when those students first enter the clinical realm, they will have no responsibility, mm -hmm. right? They will be seeing patients and will say co-managing, but really, you know, they'll be working and watching what their provider does. They'll be reporters, um, really. Exactly. Yeah. And then later, as you get further into medical school and then into residencies, boy, that's where you get responsibility, which gets sort of checked after the fact. The other nice point is when you talk about evidence-based medicine, you know, I think those who, who sort of put up evidence-based medicine as a straw man and attack it saying, oh, it's just, you know, reading the latest journal article and mm -hmm. basing it on that. That's ridiculous. Right. Um, you know, it really is thinking about the data we have but it's also thinking about clinical experience, and it is also thinking about um, you know, physiologic and pathophysiologic models. Um, but the truth is, as you know, we've talked about, we've written about, those pathophysiologic models are kind of good guardrails, um, but you can't base therapy on them because that doesn't work. Um, we might think of them as, well, 
you know, we're not going to do something which is absolutely stupid from a pathophysiologic standpoint. Um, but that doesn't take a whole lot of depth of knowledge, I don't <laughs> right. think, to recognize that. Right. And then the other thing I'd say is that, you know, one of the reasons that we we believe in evidence-based medicine is part of what that means is when, when the pathophysiology conflicts with the randomized evidence, we prioritize the better evidence. I, and I think that's the, that's one of the things that some people don't do. They prioritize the wrong evidence, uh, right. which is a big problem. And, and and I think, honestly, we ask for more evidence. I, I mean, if, mm. if, if you read a trial and you say, boy, this makes no sense, right. and it either makes no sense to you clinically or it makes absolutely no sense to you scientifically, you say, you know, this is probably a false positive because my pretest probability for this article was so low that it's probably a false positive. Right. Um, it, you know, it's I mean, whatever. We can come up with a million clinical situations to compare that to. And then you say, let me see it again. And if the next trial is positive, then you get to the point that you may say, wow, this is surprising, but it's probably right. Mm -hmm. Or, boy, we need to reconsider those pathophysiologic models Principle. because it might mm -hmm. be that those are wrong. Well said. Many of our listeners are trainees um, who will very soon be, you know, in the clerkships where they're going to be doing this to some degree. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about what are, who are those students that stand out in your mind over the years? Not, not them particularly, but what were the characteristics of these students who were exemplary, who really impressed you, who made you feel good that the future of medicine is in good hands? Um, what was it that they did on the wards that, that reassured you? Yeah, wow, that's a terrific, that's a terrific question. And I think about this a lot um, because so many of those you know, behaviors and skills are so subtle. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the people who I love to work with and I think the people who get the most out of the clinical training are the people who are just excited about medicine, you know, who want to learn, who are actually excited about the patient interaction part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I often say that you know we should only accept people who've been in the food service industry in, <laughs> in the past yeah. um, because you want people who are actually okay with um, recognizing that a lot of what we do is is serve people mm -hmm. um, and. With the excitement about medicine, it's just an unending curiosity. Um, when I'm with students in clinic, um, it's the student who exhausts me with them pushing back on, why did you do this? Uh -huh. I don't understand why you did this. Um, and not in a lazy way, teach me everything, but in a, huh, you know, I've read the recent you know cholesterol guidelines and you're making this decision why did you make that mm -hmm. decision mm -hmm. you know it's that sort of intellectual curiosity which makes them exciting exciting to mentor exciting to teach and really those are the people who you know i sort of make a mark next to their name and i look forward to following their career over you know the decades after they leave us i see And then let me ask you the flip side of it, which without getting into specific people, but they're, they're, they're definitely the students that frustrate you, that you feel like, boy, I'm nervous. I'm nervous letting this person loose into the world. Um, what is it that those students do that concerns you? Uh, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a loaded question. Um, uh, you know, for me, the two things which 
which make me dread going to the clinic sessions mm-hmm. and make me worried about the people who um, who leave our institution, not that the Pritzker School of Medicine graduates any people who are not going to be spectacular. Of of course, that wouldn't be the case right Um, now. (laughs) It's the the people who are um, a little too self-assured, self-confident, and I'm worried that they're not going to recognize when they don't know what they don't know, recognize their mistakes. Mm. Confidence out of proportion to abilities. It is so true. Mm. One of the things that I love most about medicine is um, it always keeps you humble. Mm -hmm. Every time I feel like, wow, I really get this stuff, I have an outcome or a surprise which makes me realize this is so difficult. I will not be able, you know, I will not be doing this perfectly the day I retire. And then the other thing about Mm -hmm. students, besides that overconfidence, is just the lack of commitment to caring for people. because if you're not that smart, if you're a little lazy, um, if you're a little bit overconfident, if you are sort of overcome with empathy and a dedication to the person, that's going to drive you to work harder and make sure you're doing the right, the right thing. And I think that that sort of dedication to patient care and to sort of, I don't know, it sounds crazy, but like, you know, the betterment of human health, boy, that can overwhelm a whole lot of other flaws. And I think that's well put. And there are two things that makes me think about. One thing that I personally hate is if somebody asks you something that's a factual matter and you don't know the answer, just say, I don't know. Because if you confabulate or make up something, my head's going to explode. Because we take <laughs> those things matter such a great deal. And we can't rely on things that you've just invented because you wanted to save face. And so that's one thing that bothers me a great deal. Um, the other thing that bothers me is when I encounter someone who is so driven um, to be successful, uh, which is not a bad thing, but they want to be successful, but they don't want to be good at being a doctor. And they think that success will come from something else, you know, the side project, their side bit, their side, you know, interest. Um, And they, they don't honestly come across to me as they care about being like actually very good at guiding patients through decisions and seeing patients. And to me, that's that's why you're in medical school, is you need to be very good at that. You wanna be the best at that you possibly can be. And if that means you suspend every research project and every extracurricular activity, that's what you should do. And only when you feel like you're getting the hang of it, you're gonna be good. That's when you can put other things on your plate. But I think we create this culture where we and this is not just in medical school, but throughout someone's academic career, we're not rewarding people for being good doctors. We're rewarding them for grants and for papers and for, you know, these other things. We're not rewarding them for actually being good at the job. And yeah. and then the other thing I'd say is that I, I don't think that always means having high satisfaction scores from patients because that's also not necessarily what it means. I mean, you don't want patients to dislike you, but you want to be honest and you want to be good and those two things are a little disconnected. And there's a number of studies that suggest that, you know, people who give antibiotics unnecessarily are going to have high satisfaction scores, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it's not about that. It's about, I think, practicing the art well. Sure. Uh, sure. I, I, have a, I have a whole talk about how bad we are at evaluating, but I'll just say to underline what you said, you know, when, when I interview faculty members, um, you know, coming on looking for jobs, 
what I want to hear most is at the beginning, I want to see a lot of patients because I want to get really good at this because mm. uh, it is hard. It takes a lot of work. Um, I'm all for, you know, all the duty hour changes and changes in residencies. Um, but the truth is, you know, residents who graduate today have seen fewer patients than those who graduated a decade or two ago. And many of those people, you know, those who are honest admit that, boy, I still need, you know, further clinical training. Um, and I sort of want the person who's committed to seeing a heap of patients in the first couple of years. And then whatever, you know, you slowly broaden out to the things that you want to do beyond patient care and get good at that. Um, but especially as a general internist, as a primary care doctor, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm uninterested in people's output adding lines to their CV until I'm sure that they are a competent physician. I wholeheartedly agree. Can you tell us, like, wh why does it matter if somebody is going to be, um, you know, some subspecialty surgeon or a pathologist or something where they may not be doing patient care or at least this kind of broad patient care that internists do? Um, I, I want to say that it still matters, that this is the core of medicine, is kind of approaching common complaints and ailments. Um, but how would you articulate that? I mean, do you believe that that's true? Yeah, you know, we, we might disagree a little bit on this. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> Good. Um, that's what listeners want. Yeah. Um, because, and, and, and I might have 20 years ago, mm -hmm. I might have said that, boy, I want everybody to be a kind, caring physician. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as I've grown up and had my own um, skirmishes with the healthcare field as a patient, mm -hmm. um, it is true that I want from some of my physicians to be that person who I can turn to at any time, you know, feel their empathy, have them understand me. Mm -hmm. um, but there are also doctors who um, I think you go to and you're willing to accept uh, a little bit of lack of nuance, shall we say, <laughs> I see. Um, yeah. for their skills in the operating room and what kind of a job they're going to do on your shoulder. Uh -huh. um, um, and and when I think about you know my ideal medical school that you just let me take over, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's sort of what happens in the in the post clerkship period mm -hmm. is that the people who really need those human skills, um, those people will have time and coursework to develop those. Those people who are going to be doing the most advanced surgeries or who are going to be doing operative room anesthesia, you know, I actually want them spending a whole lot more time um, working on that sort of labor um, than maybe getting better at the interviewing skills. Mm. So in your ideal medical school, would it be fair to say one could imagine different branch points? That if you're going into maybe pathology or radiology, the branch point is very early. If you're going into, you know, something else, the branch point is later. Is that something you'd consider? That is something I would consider. I, I, I do not think the branch point, though, is terribly early because um, I do think there's a core knowledge that all doctors should have. Right. And then I think to be fair to our students, um, you know, they're still young, mostly. Mm -hmm. um, and they need time mostly. to decide. They need time to be exposed. I'm always a little suspicious of that you know, student who comes in at 26 and says, I'm here to be a psychiatrist. Mm. Like, you know, I'm not sure you know what's out there. Right. Let me ask you something about, I think, general medicine, which is difficult, um, is that sometimes you feel as if you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Uh, by that I mean 
there is inevitably gonna be a case in someone's career where somebody did have a diagnosis, but the general internist was prudent in working up that diagnosis and may in retrospect feel as if, boy, I wish I had sent them for that CAT scan sooner or, or this test sooner or that test sooner. But um, I think, I don't know, when you confronted with that situation, one way to think about it is, and I think this is the way many people do think about it is, I wish I had sent them for that sooner and now going forward, I will send everyone for it sooner. But another way to think about it would be to say, boy, um, if I took everyone in that situation and I sent them for that CAT scan sooner, would I benefit all those people? Should it be a generalizable principle? Can you universalize this, you know, that kind of Kantian idea? Um, sure. Is that something that you think about over the years in practice? Uh, how do you adjust the dial on your thermostat uh, for these kinds of workups and things like that? Right. Right. Uh, uh, it is a very difficult thing in general internal medicine. It's something I struggled with early in my career, something I struggle with less now. Um, once I had decided I was going to be a general internist during my residency, um, I still had a block at, at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center to finish up. And I remember that basically every presentation began with, oh, this silly internist gave this person a course of clarithromycin or they made their diagnosis of you know, lung cancer A or lymphoma B or whatever it was. Um, and I recognize that my, um, my, my, my lot in life is to be disrespected down the line to some extent. <laughs> um, but, but what I demand or what I hope to do is that, look, for the vast majority of people, I take you know, excellent care of them. I do it at you know low low cost with a reasonable approach, and for those people who um, either present outside the norm or who don't respond how they should, that I'm on top of it to you know make that diagnosis within a week or two of their presentation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes it takes two weeks, sometimes it takes six mm -hmm. weeks, um, and I'm okay with that. And and I think um, from what I've known and from experience, um, I don't think that harms patients because there are very few things, I don't know, APML aside, hmm. right, right, that making the diagnosis, you know, on day one is truly important. Um, if that non-ulcer dyspepsia takes you two weeks to get the um, endoscopy or six weeks to get the endoscopy to diagnose gastric cancer, you know, that outcome's not going to be different. Mm. I think I think you put that well. And one of the things that it makes me sort of think about more is that, and this is something that, you know, takes several years before you even start to put it to words, which is that one of the things I think doctors have that we forget is an intervention is time and observation and repeated observation bringing someone back again and again seeing them over time and and you know and readjusting based on what you find or admitting someone to the hospital because you want to watch them for a period of time it's a vulnerable period of time we forget that that's a very under you know a very important intervention it's not always thought of as an intervention and you know the more i practice the more i realize that um, it's okay to kind of take something and you don't have to do everything in one visit. You can stretch it out over a week or two weeks. And, um, sure. and, and, and that often makes for a better relationship with the person because you get to talk to them a little bit more. 
Right. Boy, it's hard work though, right? Yeah. Because you have to form that that therapeutic alliance that the patient is going to buy into that, feel confident in you. Um, it means you're generally overbooking to your people to your sessions right. for yeah. you know a couple of weeks in a row to do that. Um, and the person has to have confidence in you. And so I think like a lot of things in medicine these days, the problem is that often the easier route um, turns out to be the more expensive, more harmful route. Um, but it really is easier to say, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna admit this person, or I'm gonna scan this person, or whatever, mm -hmm. um, to try to end the workup sooner. Let me ask you. You kind of alluded to this. How do you handle situations where someone may come to you and ask you for an antibiotic, or ask you for a medication, or ask you for a diagnostic test? that you do not believe is evidence-based or perhaps you don't believe is indicated or perhaps you don't believe would actually do them any good and maybe, you know, waste their time and money and maybe even a little bit worse. How do you, how do you handle that? Uh, and it's one thing to talk about it, as, we, as I always point out, but it's another <laughs> thing to actually be there and actually have handle it. How do you right. actually handle it? I was going to say, do you want the perfect dogmatic <laughs> answer? Right. Do you want the actual answer? The actually, I want the um, truth. Yeah, so... Usually what I do, and I, I really do do this, is is I remind myself what's right. Mm -hmm. um, and I say this person who's got a viral upper respiratory tract infection, who thinks they have sinusitis, they do not need antibiotics. And I spend the time to explain that and try to convince them of that, tell them that I'm doing the best. I give them my page number to say, look, if things aren't better in three days, when you've actually been doing your Afrin, Flonase, and neti pot, <laughs> right. you know, you call me back and, and I'll, I'll talk to you again. Um, and I really, really do work on that. I also recognize that I have limited amounts of time and energy in my life. Um, and there's the occasional patient with that headache that you know is a tension headache but who needs a non-contrast head CT um, <laughs> to really put them at ease. Mm -hmm. um, and I am not above ordering that. Mm -hmm. uh, the one thing I do do, which, which usually makes me feel a little bit bad, is I probably overstate the negative consequences mm -hmm. of that, you know, of the antibiotics they're getting, of the resistance, the C. diff risk, of that head CT, which is going to expose them to extra radiation, mm -hmm. uh, to make one last pitch to convince them to go the way that I think is right. I recognize that maybe that's harmful, maybe that's adding extra anxiety to them, maybe it's using the power dynamic in an, in an unfortunate way, uh, but I don't know. I feel like I need to do that occasionally. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good answer. And I think, you know, having been in the situation, having watched many people be in the situation over many years in many different hospitals, many different settings, I think every good physician has to strike a balance and occasionally do some of these tests that they may not think are 100% because you're trying to preserve a therapeutic alliance. You're trying to... Um, you know, lose the battle but win the war in the sense that, you know, I want to yeah. take care of this person for years and years and I want to have a good relationship and yes. and I want to do what's right for them in the long run. I think I can do a good job. And, you know, one CT scan here, one echo there, uh, that's not the end of the world, um, especially if someone has strong feelings. Uh, this is not the hill to oh, die boy. on, uh, so to speak. And to, and to highlight what you said and to sort of circle it back to um, um, medical education, Though you're supposed to be doing that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Is to say that um, you know you talked about all the observation of people doing this. 
I mean, that's that's why mentored clinical experience is so mm. key in medical education because you know you watch people do this, you watch people do it well, you watch people do it poorly, and you sort of pick and choose, boy, what's gonna work for me? What seems wrong? And one of the things I love in our in our medical students who are really excellent and incredibly confident is is when they occasionally, you know, call me on something and they say, boy, I was kind of uncomfortable about the way you talked about that. Mm. Um, because sometimes it's those, it's those, you know, I don't know what you call it, unjaundiced eyes yes, um, yes, yes. Um, that, that sort of teach you something and say, boy, I, I, I missed what that sounded like. Um, I always forget how bad heart failure sounds to someone who doesn't throw that term around every day. That's well put. I, you know, it makes me think. Um, many years ago, I had the chance to work with a gentleman who had practiced oncology for about thirty years. Um, he was a consummate professional, and one day we had to tell somebody that, despite multiple lines of therapy, um, that there really was no good further option, and this person was probably going to pass away of their cancer. So it was not an easy conversation to have. And I was kind of a fly on the wall in the room, and I watched this person who'd done it so many times do it, and you know. He did, I think, one of the best jobs, you know, one could imagine. And afterwards, you know, the the person felt, the patient felt good about it and, and gave him a hug. And, and you know, they, they, they still had that kind of good relationship. Um, and then afterwards, he was telling me about it. And I said, you know, I think you really did a masterful job. Um, and he said, oh, you know, I don't feel that way. I feel like every year I do it a little bit better, um, but I'm far from perfect. And I thought that wow. that's why, that's why he's so good because he doesn't feel like he's perfect yet, and he keeps trying right. to be better every year. That is an amazing story, um, and and you just hope that that every trainee, you know, at multiple times during the course of their education, has those sorts of experience because those are so powerful, and you remember those forever. Our time is our time is running down, but I wanted to ask you about some other topic that you and I have written about recently. And I want to see if you can how you would kind of explain this, which is um, if you have a procedural, mechanical, or surgical intervention with the goal of improving a subjective endpoint like pain, dyspnea, angina, why would you want a randomized sham controlled study? Why would you want a study where you've tested that intervention against the suggestion or the appearance of or the the idea that you've done that procedure but you didn't actually do that? Why would you want it tested against a sham? So what is so powerful about sham procedures is that they do a just wonderful job of controlling for the placebo effect of an intervention. Um, and the placebo effect of an intervention, both as someone who's read the literature on placebo effect for years and who has seen it in practice for years and who uses it you know, as a big part of my own practice, <laughs> right. um, I know how powerful that mm -hmm. is. And we've learned from the articles, boy, about um, 
you know, arthroscopic surgery for meniscal tears in the knees, uh, for shoulder surgeries, for coronary disease, for, for uh, spinal compression fractures, uh, that there are lots of interventions which really look like they work. Um, but then when you compare them to a sham um, procedure, it is really the procedure itself and not what's actually done uh, that's having the impact. Um, and I think we've been through enough of those in the last 20 years that we have learned that. And what if somebody said, you know, who cares if it's a placebo effect? If it works, it works. Why not? Why shouldn't we just be in the placebo effect business? Yeah. So, um, so right. The placebo effect is fine. And, and the, the quote that I use is actually from, um, a book by uh, Paul Offit, um, uh, which is called um, "Do You Believe in Magic?" Mm, yeah. um, who I think just said it so well that you know placebo interventions are fine as long as they are inexpensive, as long as they carry a um, very low risk of harm, and as long as they don't keep people from getting therapy that actually works. Mm, opportunity cost. And if you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if you think about what we do in medicine today, you know, there's very little that I as an MD prescribe, which is inexpensive, right? right? Um, right. which doesn't carry some potential for harm. Right. And that because we have a lot of good therapies, which doesn't have an opportunity mm. cost. Um, and so that's why I think that we need to figure out, you know, what's useful, what's placebo. And if the placebo effect of an intervention um, is you know, cheap and effective, psh, of course, you should use it. In your in your career in medicine, um, are you becoming more optimistic or pessimistic about the ability to have a good medical education, to teach people about evidence, to, you know, create a new generation of good doctors? How, how have your feelings changed on the matter? I am an optimist. <laughs> it's, it's maybe, we talked before about the things we disagree I see, yeah. with. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think you're more dogmatic than me, and I think you're more of a pessimist than <laughs> I am. Um, now, I, I, I really, I think that we still do well. Um, I'm fortunate, uh, given where I am. I see incredible students, um, smart, dedicated, um, and I think we turn out terrific doctors. Um, I think that where we could do better, and not, not, you know, and I'm not just talking about Pritzker. I'm talking about nationally is that I think we could do that a whole lot more efficiently. Um, And I don't mean getting people out of school earlier. I mean efficiently is that we use the same amount of time to actually markedly better train people. Mm. Um, And I'm hoping that we can do that. And I think that, you know, some medical schools are um, about kind of breaking down, you know, curricular walls and and working on that. Um, and I hope more and more schools will do that uh, as time goes on. I think that's well said. I have one last question for you uh, before I, I thank you so much for coming on the plenary session. Um, you know, you can ask me about my hobbies. Oh no, <laughs> no, I, I don't. You can cut that. <laughs> I, I, I I don't do that on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I have no interest in your hobby. No, I have interest, but uh, I don't. I, I I I want to preserve my time for medical matters. No, I was just going to ask. Um, as you know, Dr. Anupam Jen and I were were classmates, and I just wanted to know um, who who did you enjoy working with more? Because I'm going to see Bapu soon, and I'm going to. I just want to tell him that. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
I won't make you answer that question. I won't make you answer that question. I can I can read both of your letters of recommendation. Oh, no, that would be good. Me. That would be good because I I want to I want to confront Bapu with this uh, when I see him. No, uh, but um, I was going to ask you. The last thing I wanted to ask you was um, um, uh, before before we started recording, you were telling me a little bit about sort of a pilot initiative uh, that Dr. Stern was uh, unveiling. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that, and um, and uh, you know, will we have more things like that uh, coming down the road? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I was thinking about the two things that I've sort of been most excited about in in, in medical education here recently. Uh, one of them is is my colleague uh, Dr. Scott Stern, wonderful internist, amazing medical educator, uh, co-author of our textbook um, um, on clinical reasoning. And he, for a couple of years, um, had this elective where he would work with four students in our urgent care clinic in the morning, um, actually see, manage patients with them in the morning, uh, a couple of patients per student, and then um, sort of send the students on their way for a few hours with assignments, reconvene in the afternoon to discuss each of those patients, Mm -hmm. um, discuss the management that was done, the diagnosis that was done, the follow-up which was arranged, and actually look into the literature or have had the students look into the literature before they come Mm -hmm. back to say, you know, is what we did evidence-based? Should we have done something different? Where does research need to go to better answer questions in that field? Um, And when I saw that happening, when I talked to the students who got through that elective, I was sort of inspired that, boy, you know, this should be all of medical education. the other, the other course that we talked about a little bit, which is something we haven't done but uh, you know are discussing, is um, it's almost a journal club for junior students mm-hmm. um, where you take students at the very beginning of their education, probably a group of 10 uh, with a faculty member, who would meet once a week to review sort of the major general journals. I don't know, you know New England Journal, JAMA, Lancet. Go through those articles, discuss those articles, um, learn where the state of the field is for each of those for each of those uh, topics, and then send the students home with assignments to say, "Look, you're a first year. You don't know a lot about immunology. This article is about immunology. Come back, teach us next mm-hmm. next time, because our students are amazing at learning on their own and don't need to be lectured about you know the nitty gritty and minutia of most things." Um, and I. I sort of believe that if you did that with students um, for a year, you'd probably come out of that experience with as broad and deep of a medical education as you would from, you know, sending them through a physiology course and a cells, molecules, and genes course. Mm. And I think you're probably right about that. This is a a group of um, high-achieving, high-intellect people, um, and... uh, you know, you give them a little job like that, and they're going to do uh, a stellar. You, they may even be better equipped than had you just lectured to them. Oh man, and I would learn a ton from. That. Oh yeah, and of course we would benefit as as as, as faculty. Well, I just wanted to close by um, uh, telling a little a story. I think uh, when I was a student, I once talked to you about a funny little incident that happened when we were seeing um, those standardized patients who are kind of professionals who um, go from university university try to help teach medical students um, and it was a funny little story and I don't want to get into the story uh, but uh, it had to do with how it was a little bit stilted and how it wasn't quite like real life 
And you said something to me uh, that, um, you know, really left a mark, uh, which was that you just said, like, you know, boy, um, you know, for what you pay for medical education, you should be having this experience where you get really one-on-one contact with some faculty member who takes you through cases, uh, real-life cases, real-life people. Um, And I thought... Yeah, that was just really well put. So I think you've been thinking about this topic for many, many years now, um, and you've done a marvelous job. Uh, and um, listeners should know that you know you're a marvelous med- medical educator, and and I think that um, you and I um, uh, have worked on many, many things over the years, and it's always been a, a great pleasure, uh, especially our book, which I encourage listeners to read. And you have another, <laughs> you have another book, which is called Symptom to Diagnosis which is probably the best book I read in medical school uh, because it walks people through how do you think about the, at that time it was something like 30-some common complaints, but it's gotten a little bit bigger. Has it since then? It has. Everything expands with Everything. time, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, universe, uh, waistlines, whatever. Yeah, so symptoms. <laughs> and symptom diagnosis. Symptoms. And now it's a fourth right. edition or it fifth is- edition? Uh, the fourth edition just got sent to the copy editor, so uh, the fourth edition should be out in September 2019. Wow. Look at that. Well, I encourage um, students of medicine to pick up this book. It's really a wonderful book. Adam, thank you so much for coming on to the plenary session. Uh, We would love to have you back in the future uh, to talk about maybe some high-impact papers and how you incorporate that in your practice. Um, Would you ever come back? Uh, Of course, Vinay. It's been a total pleasure. You're wonderful to talk to. I love the podcast, and, and I also value our relationship and collaboration over the years. Thank you so much, Adam, and it was a pleasure to have you. Great. Take care. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.